Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Over Sharon Show, uh, the best darn show on the internet, and that's the one claim we will stand by. <laughs> uh, we how have dare a guest. You. Oh, yeah. How dare me, indeed. Um, we have a guest today, but before we get into that, I'm going to read a quote that I totally was supposed to pull up and forgot. I don't know how you I You have that. it. It's right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I have it right here. So I'm not too excited. I mean, I'm not too worried. It says this one's by Rudolf Steiner. We can find nature outside us only if we have first learned to know her within us. What is akin to her within us must be our guide. This marks our path to uh, our path of inquiry. And that again is Rudolf Steiner. Beautiful. And I was shuffling and something fell out. So I'm just going to take it. Awesome. Ten of Pentacles. I've never seen this one like uh, in this deck. Oh yeah, I like that. Well, that fits where I'm at right now. Yeah. Well, there we go. I think it fits this show as well because if you're resonating on that level, I know that Sharon and I have been also. So yeah, I think it's pretty cool. We all get three and a third Pentacle. Ugh. <laughs> point three three and one of so us there's no such thing as equality what are you talking about it's not it's real a math humor for you uh, i'll take four and you guys can each have three. Oh, okay. that's it. Uh, that's a good deal. That. <laughs> oh yeah deal. i would take that that happens in the poker uh realm a lot i play tournaments i used to play a lot more but you get down to this certain uh group of people and we all start making deals instead of playing it out to the end so yeah i'll take that deal we'll chop it up yeah that works for me. Um, I think, uh, what's ahead. that? Oh, no, I was just going to say about the card. Yeah. Also, I think it, it kind of represents, like I was saying, where Sharon is in her life. She's talked about uh, what's coming together for her, which is great. She met a man. And also in my life as well, because I've been writing again and I feel, you know, I've been live streaming again. If you guys haven't seen that, go check it out on this channel, the Brandon Bonanza channel on YouTube. Uh, I've been live streaming with a lot of really fun people lately and been getting some good feedback. So check that out. So I feel like I'm doing that. And then I've seen what Chance is up to. And he already told us that he feels like he's up to that. So uh, why don't you officially introduce him, by the way, Sharon? So this is Chance Garden, everybody. And I found him through some people. Well, actually, I, I knew about him through like Spoons, our friend Spoons, and through uh, another friend, Carrie. and they had talked about um, his podcast before, but I really only started following his uh, channel and subbing to his telegram posts and stuff um, right after he had Owen Benjamin on. So um, that was what a couple of months ago, a few months ago already, probably. And then at that point I was like in his channel, we're chatting and like a lot, everybody's chatting. Right. And at some point chance says he's going to bear fest and I'm like, me too. So, um, I was like, well, I'll see you there. And I met chance in person and he gave me a little mini tuning session, which went great. And, and here he is. Here I am. <laughs> Ready Tell us for about a yourself, good time. Chance. <laughs> Oh man, that's like, there could be a short version or a really long version. Right. My podcast is called the inner verse. I also do a second show every week called vibrant. So there's like at least two shows a week coming from my channel, which the best thing to do is probably get on the YouTube or Rockfin for that. Um, 
you know, it's everywhere that you might get an audio RSS feed for a show too. But I put a lot of work into the video side. So it's usually you can take it as an audio only show if you wanted to, but I really like to make fun graphics and sometimes the screen shares, the vibrants have a lot more probability of being visual. And yeah, I mean, I just like to dive into anything that I believe can expand our imagination of what we think is possible for ourselves in the world, because that is the limit that we're constantly up against and usually comes in the form of like what we believe about ourselves, the story we tell about ourselves. <laughs> I do uh tuning work where I harmonize somebody's energy field, balance it is the best word probably. You know, I'm loath to call it sound healing because the sound isn't really what's healing you, but mm. the process can bring awareness to mm, mental energy stuck in the form of like something that you may not even realize that you believe about yourself or even more sneakily what you believe about a past version of yourself that could still be affecting your present. Mm. And um, yeah, we could talk about that. Some I talk about that all the time. I'm kind of down to just get into whatever. I love that the 10 of discs came up. I'm in a place right now where in terms of, you know, the coins, I'm doing great. <laughs> I thought that jumping off of that cliff into a full-time weirdo and not working for other people would be like scraping shekels and trying to <laughs> just barely survive, but it hasn't been like that at all. It's funny. It's like, you know, the creator really wants me to do what I'm doing since I went full-time. I'm actually, I'm actually doing better financially than whenever I had a, a well-paying job that I was working at full time. So it's possible people jump off the cliff, open your wings, unseen forces will come to your aid. If you're doing what, you know, you're spiritually on a soul level meant to be doing. I think that's true. And also <laughs> I, uh, I'm really excited because I also met somebody and we are moving in in just like a week. So the 10 of discs is very much like a happily ever after I'm feeling that energy. And then it's like on to the next cycle. Yes. Love that. Absolutely love that. I'm resonating as well with all that. Yeah. I, I congratulations on jumping into full weirdo. I've done it myself <laughs> years ago, but I still, I, I just kind of support myself in different ways, like DJing weddings and I did comedy for a while and then, you know, doing fun stuff like that. But yeah, it really is great to just be able to be yourself because I feel like when you have a job and you're working for somebody else, like, you know, people call it slave job or whatever. Hey, we're not judging, but when that it, you can't really be yourself. And I even was like that before when I was DJing and I was DJing weddings, but I noticed the more that I was just myself and I was like, you know, take it or leave it basically, but in a nice way and just being, you know, really uh, cordial with people. But I've really started to, I guess I could say my career in that field ramped up because I was just connecting with people so much better because they can tell when you're being true, you know? So people that have these other jobs and they're kind of afraid to step away from it. I say not even monetarily, it just, for your own well-being, it's so much better. You just have a better life when you could just be yourself all the time and you don't have to put on this persona. So congrats, man. That's awesome. Exactly. There's so many elements to it. Like, first of all, the stress of doing something that you hate or you least don't like and like being chained to that clock of these are the hours that you do it and they hand you the work and you don't get to make your own decisions about how it's done or when and in what order. All of that is affecting your body in a big way. And 
No, I'm not saying there aren't people that should work for other people, right? That's not the case. We're not all going to be interested in entrepreneurial work, but to find what it is we resonate with and be able to pursue that, it opens up the possibility of improving your health by reducing those stress levels. And your health is your wealth. Your currency is your energetic current. And so at that level of improvement, the external version of it, which is currency, will be a lot easier to attain. It's like people, we got to get past this mindset of I'm going to grind it out and work really hard and save up a bunch of money and then later take care of myself. Because all the all the wealth that you might build up doing that process, you're then just going to like lose on trying to fix yourself. You'll do a lot better if you focus on what's best and right for you. And realize that even though we're in sort of like a fabricated jungle environment, concrete jungles, what have you, that the truth is that nature has always been designed in this way. Like what you need is already in the environment at all times. And that's not going to change just because you change your environment to be better suited to you. It's actually going to get better for you. And, you know, maybe there'll be parts of that process that require you to let go, reduce, maybe, but it's always going to be like what needed to go, what needed to change. Totally, 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 totally. And I can resonate with um, a lot of the stuff you're saying about like leaving a, a position or a job where you're working for the man, you know, and then getting to a place where you're you've kind of left let all that stuff fall away and you're just living peacefully with less stress um and and things follow like good things follow when you've let all that go and it's just i mean i'm where i'm at because of it i think you know yeah i mean the opportunities <clears throat> will always be present and then they're waiting for you to take them But if you just leave them hanging, the next opportunities don't become evident because you're still stuck on the ones that you're not taking. So, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of wisdom in what we're saying here uh, that life doesn't have to be about suffering and grinding and fighting for every little scrap or this survival mode thing. Yeah, there's so much that ties into our livelihood with our energy body that is kind of lost on people. and. You know, the root chakra, for example, it has everything to do with our right livelihood or not being in right livelihood. If we're like overworking, if we're spending a lot of mental energy thinking about what we wish we're doing, but we're not actually doing. If we're not in a home that feels safe or like the right place, you know, if we're low energy in the root chakra, we're probably not sleeping well, more likely to get like infections or illness. And these all tie together. So yeah, they all tie together. Like the, uh, the healthier that you can get on the energy body level, the more easy it ought to be to unstick yourself from the things that aren't right for you. So that's a good approach to take. If you're like wanting to make a shift that you start on the energetic level, which is a signal and an intention to your body and to universe so that you're ready to also shift externally. Absolutely. Go ahead, ahead, ahead. Brandon. Uh, I was just going to throw a quick, we've said this before, but I believe that, you know, when you're doing a lot of times people get these illnesses, right? Like cancer and okay, YouTube, we don't have the cure for cancer. That's not what we're saying. Um, 
But I think that a lot of times it's because the way people are living their life, it's kind of like they're saying to the universe, I just want to die. You know, like, I don't want to be here anymore. I hate myself. I hate my job. I hate all these silly things. So then the universe or whatever it is will grant that wish for you, even though if you're not making it consciously. Uh, so right on, you know, totally that, like I said, I think it's worth it just for that alone. But Sharon, what were you going to say? Well, I wanted to, I wanted to ask chance about um, maybe go back to, so he can expand upon something he said earlier about uh, what you believe about yourself um, and like sound isn't what's healing you. And oh yeah. I something about that. the past version of your, what you believe about a past version of yourself. I want to hear about that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I'll give a couple of examples. So for me, there was a point a couple of years ago where I was reflecting on like myself as a teenager. <laughs> and so when I was like 16 and 17, maybe up to eight, I think up to 18, I played in a band, played bass. I really loved it. My life was all about playing shows and playing music with my friends for being so young. We actually progressed pretty far in that, like being a band thing, played a lot of shows, uh, even created a record. <laughs> like we had some cool resources available to us. One of the band members, his stepdad is like a sound engineer. So we had a studio space that we could play with and somebody to master it. I mean, he still mixed it so that you couldn't even hear my bass guitar, but I guess that's part for the course. <laughs> for bass players. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, at this point in my life, like I said, everything for me revolved around how much fun it was to do this and how much I loved it. And at a certain point, like the three of us went our separate ways. We all went to different colleges. So the band stopped being a band and, uh, I got, I got really depressed after that. <laughs> like I found myself in a toxic, super psychic vampire relationship not to blame it all on them i was taken on the role of the the victimized empath it's a two-way street you know it's not all one person is the bad guy but i uh <laughs> later in life i i just had formed this belief about the version of myself from back then that like especially once i started waking up to health things and conspiracy things because my habits and my beliefs back when i was younger were obviously programmed by the society and fully retarded <laughs> you know <laughs> For sure. But I was actually telling myself this story all the time of, man, when I was 17, I was an idiot. If I could go back in time and talk to that version of me, I'd really tell him off and be like, you're wrong about all this stuff. And I realized that, oh, shit, I'm actually holding on to this belief about that version of me that he was stupid. And that's like actually influencing how I feel about myself now. Because that's still me back then. And I'll get a better, more elaborate example with like a recent client too. But instead, like I reframed it and tried to authentically imagine what it would be like if I met my current self, met my 17 year old self, but in a more uh, detached way. So where like I didn't know it was the old me, but I was just meeting somebody who was a 17 year old who was that version of me. Right. So then I realized like, actually I would think that that kid was cool for like, I'd be like, wow, you're doing pretty awesome for that age. Like you're in a band, you know, like you're athletic, cool. Like, I, I would have been like, good job for a teenager. And so that was the new posture I took on to thinking about the old version of myself. And it gave me 
some really extra clarity too when I realized that the reason that I was believing that that version of myself was so retarded and an idiot (laughs) was because it was the only way that I could sort of with like the mind is this pattern recognition thing. It just plays this game of recognized patterns. And so it takes whatever your emotional state is and then tries to come up with like, well, what's the pattern in life and the external that explains why I have this emotional state. And so for me, the emotional state after the band split up was like, depression. <laughs> you know, I really was not doing great. Uh playing video games 40 hours a week, got a 1.0 my freshman year in college. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no job, like total like gained a bunch of weight, was totally <clears throat> failing in a lot of ways. And uh what it turned out to be was that I the only way that the pattern recognition could apply to the feelings I had after the band split up and I moved away to college was that I needed to believe the story of like, well it's my fault that I lost all that stuff in my life that was most important to me that I love so much must be something wrong with me. If you know, what was most important and precious to me is now gone. I must've done something wrong, my fault, you know? And so releasing that was a huge energy boost for me. It actually was like, <laughs> you know, you can't say correlation is causation, but this, you know, it's probably not much more than a year ago that I had these insights. Actually, it wasn't a super long time ago. And it was, very shortly after that, that I found myself taking the steps to go solo, leave the old job. So I'm not saying it's a one-to-one causation, but like, I do know that whenever you forgive for lack of better words or reframe your perspective on a past version of yourself, you can free up a lot of energy. And I think that that was what helped me have the throughput to like take the next big steps. And, you know, you guys can riff on that. And then I'll tell you another example of a, a client I had this week that in an even more hard to find on your own type of way had a similar thing going on that made a huge difference when we figured it out. Brandon, do you want to, do you have any? You go first, Sharon. Um, well, that, I mean, that, that's really uh, interesting stuff because I kind of have experienced uh similar things like looking back at my younger self and reflecting on how I was and maybe not even just a a younger version of myself, but a more recent version of myself from like, you know, five years ago or, you know, eight years ago or something like that. And um, recognizing that that's where I had to be at that time. And that's, and I had to experience those things at that time. you know, thinking, thinking about the eight year relationship that I was in, that was pretty toxic. Um, but the lessons that I learned and the, just all the things that happened, I, I can't blame anybody because it just was meant to happen that way for a reason for me to experience what I did. So I could learn some things about myself and, and heal some wounds and be able to get to the place I am now where I was able to meet someone amazing and have this amazing connection with someone. Um, All those things were necessary for me to be where I am. And so, you know, kind of like a forgiving myself uh, thing had to happen in order for me to be in a place where I'm accepting of where I'm at. And I can, I can use those experiences from then to 
heal any wounds that are still there and anything that was um, a trigger for me back then, if it triggers me now in the current relationship, I can, I can know that it's not him or, um, you know, it's, I, I can't blame this new person, right? I should know that that is a trigger for me because of a past wound from a past relationship. And I can work on that and you, and heal that for myself. So I don't have to point fingers and blame other people. Um, I feel that that's recently what I've been able to do with like looking at a past version of myself. Yeah, right on. Uh, that's what GI Joe says. Knowing is half the battle (laughs) and the real, I think what happens with authentic healing and coalescing is that we have to reopen communication between areas that are blocked from each other. And in a lot of ways, just having an awareness of the why of something is the opening up of the communication channel. Absolutely. Huge. Yeah. I was going to say I could, I could attest to what Sharon's saying since I've known her and speaking of triggers, this is something I talked to Sharon about and a couple other people I explained it to him, but I don't think I ever talked to him about it on the show. Sharon definitely triggers me, <laughs> but me what too. I mean, I mean is, just look at her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, another thing I want to say too, is what a pleasure for the people who are listening and watching this all are, we all have great voices. This must be like a medley of goodness for their ears. And you know how, you know, how we always say that no one's a healer. People heal themselves. Well, I'm going to make a claim. I'm going to say that our voices are healing people right now. <laughs> Just kidding, everybody. But yeah, I think yeah. Uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that because I think it's like an elephant in the room because I'm listening to Chance talk and then, you know, me, obviously somebody at a wedding. One of the uh, I did the announcements and the bartenders were like, are you on the radio? They're like, we think we've heard you. I'm like, I have a show, the over Sharon show subscribe. But yeah, it was it was he's like, you got a radio voice. And I'm like, yeah, I know it. <laughs> but um, you have Sharon a obviously voice. Has, a, has a great I voice, can. too. Um but uh, what I wanted to, uh, oh yeah, so I was talking about the triggering. So yeah, Sharon, because we're opposites in some ways, you know, I'm very, I don't have a lot of respect for time. We'll just say it that way, right? I'm very <laughs> inward focused and Sharon is other than that. She's different. So there's a lot of times where she'll want to do things faster than I would normally do them. And in the beginning, and even now, sometimes I feel myself triggered by certain things or whatever. But I just give myself the space and I'm same thing you're talking about. And I just realize it and I go, oh, no, she's probably right. Brandon, just because you're a genius doesn't mean you're always right about everything. I mean, most of the times, but once in a while, I'm pretty sure geniuses do things faster. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know if you're a genius. Uh, Well, you know, as long as I think (laughs) I'm one, then I can be one. Right. Look at Kanye West. I mean, you know, uh, (laughs) I always finished the test first and then had plenty of time to take a nap. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With tests, I definitely did that. But it's more like, oh, yeah, 15 minutes. It's more like that. And then it's not 15 minutes because I don't in my brain, 15 minutes is like whatever I want it to be, you know. Uh, So Sharon is not like that. She knows the time of 15 minutes. And so in the beginning or even now sometimes. But it's funny because I'm sure I trigger her, too. And the way our personalities work, if we didn't overcome that and we didn't overcome this, we couldn't have this great show. And that's just you know, it goes to the healing. Um, I'm so fun. I'm just laughing at myself because I said great show. Uh, but no, it's just, it just like a testament to the self-healing and how you can interact with other people. And also what I wanted to say is 
what's overlooked by a lot of people. And I know when I first started doing the self-healing thing was I became introverted and a hermit and I didn't want to interact with a lot of other people, but I feel it could be very crucial to the healing process. And it kind of uh, fast forwards it. It makes it faster because of that, because you're interacting with people and then you have to work on yourself even more because then you could feel yourself getting triggered where if you stayed alone all day by yourself, you wouldn't be as triggered. Uh, so you, it's like exercise, right? Just like why you go to the gym or why you work out. It's the same thing. And then you also get to build great relationships. That's the benefit of it. Um, so I wanted to say that. And then I also wanted to ask you, how old are you, Chance? 33. Oh, Illuminati confirmed. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Watch out. Yeah. Um, I'm 46. I've been telling people I was 47 for some reason. <laughs> but I did I, that I, when I was in my tw- like late 20s. I was like, I'm 28. And I'm like, wait, I'm 27. Oops. <laughs> yeah, because I said it to my father today when my niece was, we were hanging out with my little niece. And uh, yeah, he was like 46. And I'm like, 47. I'm like, wait a minute. And I was like, wait, it's 2022. I'm like, no, I'm only 46. But anyway, <laughs> I don't no. even believe you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what most people say. I just Are you like I'm, part elf? Yeah, looking you at got your it. ears, maybe He's you brand are off the gray. like a pirate elf or something. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like a mix between an elf, a high elf from uh, Valeria, or wait, not Valeria. I don't know. Mix up all my things, but or like a like a wizard. I always say brand off, brand off the gray. Uh, I, I dig something. it. Yeah, all right. I think I'm aging backwards, also. So I got a little <laughs> Benjamin button going on. It's cool. I mean, you know, miracles happen. You just got a major Tolkien a file. Oh, awesome. Yeah, we talk about that quite a bit on the show, even though Sharon isn't as in-depth as I am. Yeah, Brendan loves it. I mean, I'm cool listening to it, but I don't know the details. I mean, I've like I've read the unpublished works and everything. I mean, I don't fuck around with Tolkien. Yeah. Yeah. I well, I went on this binge right about this time last year. I was like, you know what? I never read The Hobbit. I was always into the other ones. I seen the movie or whatever. Like, let me listen to the audiobook, because these days I just way better at listening. So I listened to it and then I listened to Lord of the Rings and I'm like, I want more. So I listened to the Silmarillion and I just started watching videos, explaining it, listen to it again. And yeah, I went down the steep rabbit hole, but it's amazing because there's so many parallels that you could just pull out of there, even self-healing, all this kind of stuff we talk about. And uh, it influenced a lot. And I'm actually, so I took a break for a while, but I started again, listened to the Hobbit a couple of weeks ago. And now I've been listening to Lord of the Rings. So yeah, I, we could nerd about that all day. But the reason I uh, brought up your age is because I think it's great. I don't think I started my process till like I was probably 35 or 36. I started doing stand up comedy. And a little bit before that, I started a blog. And I've said this before it's all credit to Joe Rogan, everybody. <laughs> uh, you know, so people are just are what they are. I used to like Joe Rogan too. I admit, when I first started my show, it was way more. Rogan adjacent than bear adjacent, but I've learned. Oh yeah. Well that's see, that's the good thing. And that's why I figured out the psyop of Rogan before I came across Owen talking about it. And I was like, yeah, this guy gets it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I love that. That resonation of truth. You're just like, oh yeah. And I, I kind of fell away from Rogan in like 2016. I think it was, I started listening to Dave Smith and then I had to be reminded that I hosted a show at a comedy club and Dave Smith was the headliner. Cause once I found out who he was, I forgot. And then my friend who's a comedian, he's like, you idiot. He's like, you worship this guy now and you opened up for him or you uh, hosted for him. But yeah, I, I got into Rogan in like 2012. And then at about that time, yep. 
whenever he had Neil, my ass Tyson on yeah. and he like backpedaled on his whole moon, moon landing is fake thing. I was like, this fucking guy, how can, <laughs> how can you not, how can you backpedal on this? Just because the expert told you it blew my mind. Yeah. Because it is that. so fake. It looks worse than anything I've ever seen in my life. It, I remember that. And there wasn't even, you know, it's not like Neil even had a good argument. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, he's like, oh, just trust me. I'm the mystical African-American teacher. Yeah. I As could he just drops kind of, the mic. Yeah, right. Gravity. I could, when I was listening to that conversation, I could feel myself going, oh, this guy just wants to get along. Like Joe Rogan wants to just get along with Neil. Like he's just agreeing with him because of that. Like he, it's like he doesn't want to confront him. Uh, you know, I could tell it wasn't because of the evidence that changed his mind. You know, there I don't didn't know the reason, but I have a feeling I do now. But um, then, you know, and I then think, they put Neil on this show called Cosmos, where they just gave you all the grabblers, so-called science. And I found that really hilarious because the original Cosmos was a Carl Sagan program. And Neil steals from Carl Sagan all the time without even saying where he got it. So it's like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think they're, they're both lame at the end of the day, but yeah. yeah. I'll, inter- I'll interject and say how I knew about Joe Rogan since I grew up under a rock. The only thing I knew about Joe Rogan was that he did fear factor. <laughs> and then after that, I didn't know anything about him until Owen Benjamin talked shit about him. <laughs> like, that's pretty that's good. Me, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you're not the target demographic, yeah. you know, I was right in there in the target demographic. I had a roommate who did jujitsu and he's like, listen to this podcast, man. And I was like, what's a podcast? <laughs> and now here I am. <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah one thing led to another. Good. So I'm grateful for that in the sense that I put in a lot of hours of listening to Joe and his cadre before I found more interesting things, which I consider them and like Bill Hicks uh, at at prisonplanet.com to be i'm sorry they call him alex now this their whole thing him. is like the the cul-de-sac before the gold mine which is where they give you truthful information mixed in with bullshit kind of like you got to put cheese on the mouse trap right and then they take you a certain distance that you could have gotten on your own but then they make so much content that you just keep circling in a loop and never going past a certain point and uh you know, you would never even have time to research things for yourself if you only if you wanted to listen to everything they did. And it's a it's a pretty common trick. It's exactly what Owen does Just keep people only on his stuff. Keep them away <laughs> from the real truth about. No, I'm just kidding. Owen's cool. <laughs> the real truth about those. James. Owen doesn't present his stuff like you got to listen to all of it. Yeah. And he shares a lot of other stuff, even stuff he doesn't totally agree with. That's what I like about him, because. He'll just watch somebody or talk about him or promote him, even if he doesn't agree totally with him. And we talk about that on the show all the time. We're like, you have to find common ground. You have to prioritize what you like in people or what you are resonate with them. And it's more about, hey, do you live according to the golden rule or God's law or natural law or however you want to phrase it? Is that how you're living? Great. We could be friends. You know, do you think we live on a spinning ball? Well, we could joke around about that. Who cares? You know, I think it's flat or simulation or is it a realm? But, um, you know, all those are just interesting conversations, but I'm not going to uh, argue with somebody if they're, you know, as long as they're accordance with natural, I don't care if they believe it's a, a frog that they worship in the sky. You know, it's like, good for you, man. You know, 
I like yeah Friday. I'm against idolatry but you know people do what you want I think idolatry leads you to be idle <laughs> oh yeah yeah but right what was I going to say uh let me tell this story real quick about the other oh, client yeah. that I yeah, had yeah. in the bank and then we can get into other stuff but the tuning process that I do in a nutshell is sweeping a fork through somebody's energy field and then detecting disturbances in the field. They give me specific information about what it is based on where it is. And I have gone in depth about this in many shows. So if you have specific questions, I'm happy to answer them. But like this recent client is just over a few days ago on Saturday, we found a lot of issues that ended up connecting to this time of about one year old. So that's before you can even remember, you know, and there were a few, it was a complex of, of issues and energetically, but whenever I hit the core of it, like the, the original point of it, it just flew into my mind of like, Oh, okay. There was a point at this age as a baby where you had this strong feeling of like, I want to be with my mom. Where's my mom? (laughs) which is very normal baby thought process. Right. And I bring this up and uh, she was like, well, my mom had, I realized when you said that my mom had postpartum depression, according to my mom and dad, when I was born. And as an infant, I spent most of my time being cared for by my dad because mom was too depressed. And I was like, well, there it is. Cause the, the complex of issues were like left side of the body energy problems and the left side is the feminine side, the mother side, the receptive side. And like overall her, her desire was to shift from being like an over giver to a self-sacrificial point to being able to receive as much as she gives and improve some confidence and self-empowerment issues too. And when we got to this root thing of like, when you were one years old, you were wishing that your mom was there and wanting to receive nurturing from her. This is what baby's mind has to do. Whenever mom's not there providing the nurture, baby mind has to say, well, it must be my fault. (laughs) You know, must be something wrong with me that I don't deserve it and that I need to try extra hard to give so that I deserve more or whatever, you know, being really general about it. And when we found that core issue, it unlocked the whole rest of the energy field on the left side to allow more receptivity and. Hopefully, you know, even in this person's case, maybe like help them be more fertile for having children, which I think was the goal too. So there's a, <laughs> innumerable things that can be the result and the benefit of finding old beliefs about yourself that you set so long ago, maybe even before you were forming memories that you don't remember that you put that belief in about yourself and left it. Very, very cool stuff yeah i need you to do that for me (laughs) i need to book a session with you yeah it only takes like an hour well it takes a little more than an hour because we got to talk before and after but that's how long a session in the actual sound will last and usually unless we're like having to do a lot of deep renovation on the foundations usually we can get the whole energy body open and balanced in an hour there are exceptions. I can't make a promise, but it's probably like 75% of the time we can clear up everything major that's going on. And in the cases where we can't, a second or at most third session within a few weeks can definitely have everything humming and, and buzzing in a harmonious way 
Love it. Yeah, that's really awesome. It's it's crazy how um, the things that happen to us and we blame on ourselves are really just the roots, like you were saying, the root of the problem. And when you can bring that into awareness and forgive yourself because of it, and like you were saying, looking at your past self and not demonizing him, you know, it's like, yeah, he was an awesome dude or an awesome gal. You know, I think that's really important. Yeah, to see the good. To see the good in that version of you is key because no matter what point of your life, you're going to have flaws, but like it would be, it's dishonest to just focus on that and be like, that's all that you were, or that's all that I am. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the, the key to any form of advancing in life is to find how you're lying to yourself and stop lying to yourself. Right. Huge. Huge, huge, huge. Yeah. And another thing I tell people a lot is to congratulate yourself when you get on this journey. You know, it's like take a little time, step back and, you know, maybe even do something for yourself. Go out to eat something, buy buy something, you know, just celebrate in a way that you're like, hey, I'm now working on healing. You know, most people in this realm probably aren't doing that. Uh, It's not a judgment or whatever, but it's just a fact. So if you are doing it, and you're doing it in a conscious way, you know, give yourself a pat on the back at least and celebrate the past you. Because if it wasn't for that person walking that road, you know, you were always walking on your path. You had to go through all that stuff you went through in order to get here, to have that insight to the world, really, into how it works and stuff like that. And to just heal yourself. Uh, Sharon and I talk about this a lot. The, your former issues that you thought you had or addictions or whatever it was, or your terrible behavior. When you heal yourself, it becomes like a superpower because you have still have that point of view and now you can understand it, how it works. And then you can help other people because of it, too. So, yeah. And lifting yourself out of judgment and recrimination is key, because even with the addictive behaviors, if you reframe it in your mind to see, well, what was I getting out of it? (laughs) You know, like all forms of victim mentality, there's a profitability to it. And that's what makes it enticing. And if you can see what you're getting out of it and realize like, okay, I was using it to cope with this, or I am using it to cope with this, it can help you because you can realize, oh, I don't really need it for that anymore. So might help you put it aside. And then with the idea of being on the path of healing, (laughs) or however you want to put it, there's also a potential pitfall in the idea of like, the, the key, the end of the day, what we want is to actually be whole not to be always in the process of like fixing I'm broken. I'm fixing it. I'm fixing it. I'm working on it. (laughs) So there's a bit of a paradox here because the true healing process is always in coming to wholeness, but yet there's always more healing to do no matter how much wholeness you've achieved. (laughs) So like, how do you reconcile that? So I, I would advise to keep your mental posture in the realm of wholeness. And then when you're thinking about healing, even detach from that idea a little bit and decide like, well, there's always improvement to be had. I can always further optimize. So in that sense, like I'm continuing the path of healing, even though I recognize my wholeness and that my wholeness is what heals. And also that as vessels for the universal life force energy, you know, as as embodiments of supreme being in a physical temporary form, that means that in a simplified way to put it as shortly as possible, 
the life force energy that we are and carry and embody is not separate from the life force energy of cosmos. Like the new age, when they say we're all one, it's kind of true and it's kind of not true. The best way to like frame that in my opinion is to see that the animating force, the spirit, the breath of the creator, the divine spark, life force energy, Hana, <laughs> Chi, that is actually the unified field. That is the oneness. The I am, the sense of I am, is the aspect that's indivisible and primary to all the rest of the multiplicity and creation. But our vessels, our identities, our egos, <laughs> that shit is not one. Yeah. You know, there's, there is uh, multiplicity and plurality there. So don't get caught in like, well, it's all one. So it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Communism <laughs> is probably good. <laughs> and so because that aspect of, of self, the deepest, truest aspect of self is one with all the rest of the life force energy and cosmos. That means that the healing process, the optimizing process at a certain point, you can almost start looking at like in a shamanic way that the work you're doing on yourself is the way that you do work to help the world. And that whatever part and fragment of and sliver of darkness within yourself, you can shine light on while recognizing your wholeness, which is that you're not separate from the totality of the life force everywhere. Then <laughs> to me, that's how you sort of reconcile the paradox of like, I'm on the path of healing. I'm working on myself, but also I'm embracing my wholeness as a way to do that. And it gives you the proper perspective with how you might actually do something to benefit and aid the world, which is always, you know, if you want to change the world, change yourself. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great point because even when you're saying that you're healing, that implies that you're something wrong with you and you're broken and you're not whole. So it's like this, another sneaky way to get victim uh, narrative in there. So I, I think it was spoons that was saying something about that to me or telling me that. So, yeah, I think that's actually super important. It's like just the way that we talk and communicate these things uh, there's hidden victim in it. You know, what do you think, Sharon? Um, yeah, well, something that Chant said reminded me of um, some of the things we say pretty often on the show. And it's like one of the things we say a lot is to do something till you're done. Like if you are, you have a habit or you, you know, someone would consider that a bad habit or uh, it's something that is not a healthy habit for you, but you, you just can't stop. So just do it till you're done. You know, I like to poke fun of my dad. I'm like, how many Dr. Peppers tell you you've had enough Dr. Pepper for a whole life? <laughs> still more. <laughs> yeah. For him, still more. <laughs> yeah. Right. I hope, I hope not. I think he said he quit buying soda, but you never oh, know nice. with him. Yeah. That's yeah. a big one. I had to overcome that. Um, uh, was I going to say something else that you said? Oh, yeah. When you were talking about how you were explaining getting over like what the New Agers say, we're all one, man. Uh, a way that I heard it put that was great was it's kind of like you are a character in a story that's written by Tolkien, for example. You might be Frodo or you might be Gandalf, but you're not Tolkien himself. You're just an aspect of him. And it talks about that a little bit in the Kabbalion with the way the universe is mental, all is mind where we exist in the mind of the all and we're just an aspect in that same way, but we're not the whole, we can't claim to be Tolkien, you know? Yeah. And what is the mind? You can't have it without the sense of I am and self, right? So 
that's what I mean when I say the, it's very much a hermetic reflection of the hermetic principle, but I just expand it to be that rather than calling it mind, I call it life force, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, it's kind of the same thing. <laughs> it's the animating spirit. And uh, yeah, I, I love that you're into Tolkien. I actually, if you like audiobooks, I, I narrate audiobooks. If you, you know, might want to listen to some of those. Yeah. Are you running a commercial in on us? What are you doing? No, I'm just kidding. Actually, oh, yeah, where can yeah, people can find you now while we're still uh, in the first hour of this? Not that, I mean, we keep it all together, but yeah. How can people <laughs> find your work? So the best thing is probably just on any episode of my show to go into the description and look for the bottom part, the support links. But I've got two audiobooks right now and I'm working on the third, pretty close to being done with it. The, the ones that I'm like, I like both of them. Don't get me wrong. But the ones that I think have the most like bang for your buck value are the spirit world series by Dylan Sicosio. A few guys, have you heard of his work? Yes. I actually have all those books and I'm trying to slowly get through them, but yeah, they're not that hard. No, it's not that. It's just (laughs) that I'm like, I'm, I'm always like, I have so many things open at once is the problem. And so I feel you go back into my audible and press play is all I need to do. Yeah. So I've got, I I did the audio book for the third book of that series. It's got four total and I'm working on the fourth one. There are audio books for the first two. But that series is about the secret language of Ohm, <laughs> you could call it. The, okay. the primary symbolic system, and it really comes from the constellations that all the religions and mythologies and languages are based on. That there is a set of keys in the language, in the phonetics themselves. You could call it the phonetic Kabbalah the phonetic transmission of wisdom or like (laughs) it's almost, it's hard to tell honestly, like if it's even uh, if it's like inspired logos or if it's artificial logos or some mixture of the two. Hmm. But the point is that once you get these keys, you're not going to be able to be tricked by uh, dogmatic religions, mysticism that has no grounds in nature or even history that is, actually mythology that is history allegorized through mythology that isn't even likely to be true history. (laughs) And it turns out there's like way more of that. Once you get the keys, you're just going to see it everywhere that most of what passes for history was actually (laughs) allegory. Yeah. Completely sky clock allegory. And you know, there's a lot we could say about that, but there's a term in Sumerian or Akkadian called Lumashi, which means constellation writing. And this is kind of a separate research thread. Dylan doesn't go into the Sumerian as much, but he focuses really on, well, he, he goes all over the map and gives you incredible keys. And once you have them, you can see the pattern for yourself and verify it for yourself. But this Lumashi idea, th- this is kind of where I'm at with it all. And my, my conjecture on why and how this happens, but constellation writing is that when you look at all of the sky clock and the constellations as they've been allegorized or mythologized that in the names given to the constellations in their proximity and relationship to each other in the differences between names for things and symbols, you know, like in, in some systems, Aries of the Ram is actually like 
a, an entirely different uh, picture, not a RAM. And so when you're looking at all this context of like, it could be a RAM or it could be a cherubim, or it could be, you know, the Pegasus square could be an arc, or it could be the garden of Eden, or it could be part of Pegasus, the horse. And you also have to take into account how the actual phonetic sounds in the words of each of the languages and names pertaining to these constellations, uh, the phonetic sounds themselves might have meaning if you separate them out in what's called green language. And so, you know, the people of the past, the astronomer priests of the past, they had a lot of time on their hands and uh, they were very highly valued and sought after individuals because of their knowledge to do what's called judicial astrology and make predictions or for their rulers and whatnot. But on top of that, whenever a ruling king or empire would come and take over a place, usually one of the very first things on their agenda is to capture the astronomer priests. And then, especially if they were a newer kingdom or a newer empire, newer bloodline taking control, they would have these hostage astronomer priests. And there's even an argument to be made that the name Homer, the name given to the author of the Iliad, it means hostage. <laughs> and they would take these hostage astronomer priests and be like, okay, write us a history of our kingdom that gives legitimacy to our divine right of rulership. And so whether this is like fully grabble and they knew it was bullshit, but they were doing it as a way to like trick the people or whether at a certain point, I think it's probably some of both at a certain point, there was just a belief commonly held amongst everybody, especially the astronomer priests that whatever information that you could derive out of this system of wordplay and priestly pun craft would actually be logos speaking to you that like they were code breakers and they thought all of our language is inspired by God or the logos. So if we can find the hidden meaning by reading between the lines that we're actually receiving a direct transmission or Kabbalah, which is what Kabbalah means from logos or from source. And so they would apply this system of wordplay and multidimensional interpretation to the sky clock, to the, <laughs> to all kinds of things. Right. And out of that, they would derive a story. And that's actually where scriptures all come from. So like, a very small example. Some of this is hard to explain in depth without preparing notes and just walking you through like detailed examples. But back to this Pegasus square idea, which is a constellation. It's actually a square in the sky. It's in the winter half of the zodiac, the water half, the deluge side, the waters, the chaos, the primordial waters. So this Pegasus square, depending on the various interpretations of the the stars within it and the uh, the names given to them and in different languages. Basically, <laughs> this is like it's all it's Noah's Ark. It gives you the the story of Noah's Ark or Utnapishtim was who what he was called in the Epic of Gilgamesh before in an earlier time in the Sumerian mythology. There's also basically like the components that you can derive out of this one constellation to give you the idea of a garden, to give you the idea of an apple or a tree in the middle of it, to give you a serpent. <laughs> and like, so like really briefly summarizing this, the story of the garden of Eden and all the characters and archetypes involved with it 
is 100% an interpretation of this Lumashi or constellation writing by looking at the hyperdimensional nature of these words and sigils and phonetics and symbols and deciding like, well, because all this is here, if we read between the lines, that this must be what really happened or that we're going to give it to the people and tell them that's what really happened. And it's going to resonate with them because it's crafted out of what nature already shows us, which is this sky clock. Does that all make sense? Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Like Crow says, there is no lie in nature. So if the story is written in the sky and you interpret it, people are going to believe it and they're going to resonate with it because it's true. Even if it's not totally it's true. It's allegorically true. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Allegory is huge. Go ahead, Sharon. We're going to say but not, gonna... not literal history. <laughs> yeah. And that's as where like record, this, taking uh, the scriptures and taking the Lumashi as literal history is where we get all of the dogmatic religions. It's where we get the worst of it all, in my opinion, which is new age Gnosticism, which is basically simulation theory. <laughs> it's <laughs> like you, they totally just leave at the door. Any, any understanding of astrotheology or this concept of constellation writing or the ability to read between the lines and see the pun craft. And instead they take these symbol systems and be like of stories that are completely incomprehensible that they themselves never read. And they take someone else's interpretation of it. And they're like, well, the Demiurge created the realm and we're all slaves to a loose farm. And you know, (laughs) like, well, okay guys, like this is you're rebelling against religions that you think people are silly for taking literally and believing dogmatically, but you're doing the exact same thing. But the reason why you feel that it's more valuable is because you've taken it in the new age Gnosticism vein to the ultimate level of victim consciousness, which is not only am I a victim, but the entire world is designed to victimize me and it's in complete prison. And the only answer is to completely break from reality and try to escape from it. You know, like, holy shit. It does not get more victim than that. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. hundred percent. And I'll just say quickly. And there's just so much in the truth, so-called truth movement that supports this idea. People believe this idea and the breadcrumbs are left for us who are seekers because I think that like the top level uh, wannabe elites and controllers also actually have this worldview, but the either they do or they want us to because it's a perfect slave mentality for a master slave dynamic. And they leave the breadcrumbs for us. <laughs> you know, they give us things like the Nag Hammadi text, which might not even be fucking real. And then most importantly, they give us their interpretation of it, which by the way, the, the common interpretation of the Nag Hammadi gospels, which are the, the primary source material for this new age Gnosticism thing. You know who gave us that <laughs> UNESCO? <laughs> That's the United Nations. <laughs> oh, gee, that. Oh, gee, does. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> like that. And so I, I think the breadcrumbs are left so that people seeking will see, will, will believe that this worldview of the, the demiurge artificial realm, loose prison is the highest guarded secret and the furthest truth that you can get to. And then once you believe that about it, it's like really hard to break the spell. Cause you're like, I worked hard to get to this level of understanding. I had to do years of research and now I get it. We're fucking slaves to the demiurge, bro. Yeah, exactly. It's nothing more than materialism. If you believe in simulation theory, we cover that a lot on here. Talk about spiritual realms. And I, I would just say it reminds me of a uh, quote we say a lot. 
by Ramdas, which is every method is a trap. But I will further go on to say that every method is a trap that's baited with truths. So they have that truth to pull you in, but then they're just going to get you with some form of materialism to keep you in a uh, slave mindset. You know, it's well, Ramdas, not that everything he ever said was shitty, but like he is exactly the same worldview, except instead of new age Gnosticism, he's approaching it from one of the oldest versions of it, which is Hinduism and Buddhism, which are the same thing, actually. Oh, yeah. And it's the doctrine of emanations. It's the Kabbalah, all of it meant to be allegory being taken literally you go to india most gurus that you might ever train under are telling you that the only the only way to find truth is to eliminate all ego and you're like well, what does that mean it means any realm that you can perceive any level that you reach mm-hmm. in any physical or spiritual experience where there is any such thing as experience then you're still in the trap you're still in the maya you're still in the illusion so what they're like actually pushing you towards ideologically and belief system wise is oblivion, seeking oblivion, non-experience, non-existence, which by the way, the hilarious part of that is that it doesn't exist. Yeah. Like, just follow me here. Non-existence does not exist. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> you can't even, but it's like this ultimate feminization and it's in super old cult. It's ultra feminization in the sense that it's like, Please return me to the womb. Please create me an artificial womb. Please give me a metaverse. Give me an escape from reality. Put me back into this, the pure safety, comfort, and nurturing of non-existence and pre-birth. And um, I'm sorry, but like it is what it is. We're here. And to choose to believe that it's all bad and everything's a trick and everything's a trap. And that any work that you do on yourself is just ego. And like, you should let that go and just go meditate into a cave until you transcend into non-existence. Like, mm-hmm. give me a fucking break. Like, why can't we have fun? Yeah. <laughs> why can't yeah. we just like put all that aside and realize that as vessels of the creative force and the divine spark, that the very nature of the dynamic of our experience here is what we make it. <laughs> that it's actually safe. Not safe isn't the right word, but like, you know, most people would rather live in the comfort of routine and authority rather than experience the wilderness and the dance and the darkness in the forest with the unknown. But that's the place where new and novel and fun and treasure and yeah, difficulty and pain and hardship and challenge. But it's all waiting for us to like start making up our own story rather than, you know, it's basically. On a morality level, it's like, is the right thing right because someone told you it's right? Or are you in a better position if you know right and wrong for yourself and do that because you know? Absolutely. Yeah, from your own intuition. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because uh, just like I was saying, you need that truth. So Ram Das did speak a lot of truth, but then also his worldview because what he did with what he perceived with that truth, he is actually letting his ego get in there and he didn't even realize it. It's really amazing. And that's why I like that every method is a trap. Not that healing yourself and doing all these things are traps. It's just that they're an attachment that you could be like, oh, this is the only way and I got to do this. And you kind of get stuck instead of getting to the next level of, uh, I guess I could say level of consciousness, you know, like you were saying earlier with, working on yourself there's always a next thing you can do kind of and i was going to say this earlier kind of reminds me of a video game you know 
you can look at yourself as the character in the game instead of judging yourself all the time. It's like, no, I had to start off here to get to level one, to get to level two. Not that we're in a video game or simulation. It's just a, uh, but it's a great allegory. Yeah. If you take it a, as allegory. If you take exactly. simulation or video game as allegory. Absolutely. Empowering. It's great. If you take it as literal ultimate victim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's right, so funny right. how it's so nuanced, such a thin right. line. But, so sure. many, like so many things can be true one way and true the other way. It just depends on your perspective and how you're looking at it. Brennan, I always talk about the elephant in the like an elephant in the room in a dark room and everybody's touching a different part of the elephant trying to define it and it's like there are many things that can be true about that elephant in that room if if one's touching the tail and someone's touching the trunk you know they're all everybody's going to experience something a little bit different but everything that they're experiencing is true and can be true yeah and once you get the keys and language to recognize the doctrine of emanations and the cult of the sun then you can see that everybody's got their hands in their religion on the same thing, this elephant, but they are only seeing their part of it. They think it's separate. And I will add too that like getting the keys to the language and the mythology, just like we said about the video game thing, it's powerful as allegory, empowering, great, more fun. It is doom, (laughs) you know, it's victimhood. It is failure as literal. I mean, that's true for all of the spiritual systems. So like when I talk about these things, it is not to like put down Christians or Buddhists or whatever, but to hopefully lead them out of the cave, the Plato's cave of dogma, externalization and messiops of some kind of savior outside of themselves and not to like in a Luciferic way, make them think they're God, but to realize that their only connection to God is inside themselves. And that the only truth of the mythology is in the hyperdimensionality of allegory, where now you're able to derive meaning that pertains to what really happens here, what is actually going on in nature, rather than some mystical thing that is talking about realms and other dimensions and higher planes of consciousness. And trust us, we've been there and we know and our our system goes back so far that we're aware of cycles that are four million years old and just, you know exact same bullshit as the the nasa mechanism cult that tells you like we know exactly how far away this star is and it's millions and billions of light years and trust us we know it's the exact it's both sides like the priestcraft and the science scientism cult they're two arms of the same shit bird and <laughs> you know the white coat brings you into the world the black robe takes you out <laughs> They got, they do have a lot of control from cradle to grave if we acquiesce to that system. But we can actually take the value of those systems, which I think the original value was probably really powerful before Grabble, pre pre Tower of Grabble. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the Tower of Babel as an allegory is super powerful too, because it is like this one, there's a lot of evidence that there was a universal language or or um, symbol system derived from nature and from sky clock and from the sun as a symbol of the creator in the realm that at a certain point was divided up on purpose with the connections and roots obscured. Like, I mean, so much of it goes back into China. What happened in China at the time that the information age started to pick up? Oh, you know, just complete cultural obliteration. Wouldn't want to be able to see that 
uh, yeah, their system actually proves that the, the whole Vatican uh, unum sanctum rule of all is completely contrived and man-made and has no divine authority because they're basing their entire system off of something older. Same thing happened in South America when the conquistadors came and wiped out the civilizations. Those people were Buddhists, man. <laughs> they weren't you speaking the same language precisely, but they had words that were they had too many words that meant the same thing as Eastern cults. And they had too many practices like uh, weird rituals and shit that were identical to rituals of Western occultism to be statistically possible. You know, <laughs> so they needed to be wiped out. They wouldn't allow anybody to come to the new world that wasn't uh, basically illiterate and retarded. <laughs> Just sending mostly soldiers over like or Jesuits. They were the only ones allowed to come over because if you had any literacy or knowledge of history and you would come over here before they finished conquering, you would have seen through and been like, oh, this empire is based on a foundation of lies. What happens in the Middle East? The Middle East is the one of the largest wellsprings of the ancient world's universal system of the language of the sun. Oh, you know, they're just knocking down temples and destroying things left and right. And there's nothing left. And, you know, they continue to make that effort to destroy and to destabilize those regions. And I think that's probably even happened in North America, you know, with the westward expansion and what aspects of history of North America are hidden, concealed and untrue. I don't buy like the Tartaria grand or overarching narrative. I don't even necessarily buy, you know, when I'm saying this, I'm not necessarily saying there was like one worldwide empire even, but it could very well be that some kind of traveling adventurer class of people spread the ideas from one place to another. That could sounds like Michael Tessarion stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Michael's a buddy of mine. Uh, oh, it must be nice. Must be nice. <laughs> yeah, that's why I name dropped it like that. I just want you to know how nice it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love I love what you're saying because I even am one of these crazy people who thinks that the conquest of this area, the New World, or whatever it is, could have even been one that was uh, like spiritual. If you get enough people to believe the culture changed, I think that mud floods or whatever the realm is just going to create it because it's all energy it's all consciousness so i i even look at like i don't even think there really has to be a they per se i think it's more of an it there's this i call it like if you think of the law of one and how they let uh you know people are you familiar with the law of one oh to a degree okay so well it's is really basic so in this, uh, I'll forget the words that I'm using, but in this level of consciousness that we're at, you know, their whole thing is where consciousness is evolving. So to evolve to the next level or whatever, you're going to have people that are going to go the dark path and the light path. So I think when the people go the dark path, they become what you would call demons or whatever, right? Or this demonic entity or the devil. People have a lot of words for it. And I think what happens is they go up there and they are able to help assist people on that dark path because that's all what their intentions their thought everything is guided on that and like we were saying earlier you have to do it until you're done well technically they're helping people they're helping them get all their garbage out of the way and and some people most people will kind of turn around and get off that path after however long but some people will go to the next level and it's just like a cycle so what i'm thinking is in that way i feel that when people are just evacuated they display this behavior 
because of that. And it works similar to the way the intuition would work for someone who's more intuitional and they become kind of like drones. So even the people like at the top, top, we have no idea they could actually be believing what they're doing or whatever. And, you know, there still could be secret societies and all this stuff. But when I see this worldwide behavior and I look at the way it worked in the past, I feel like it is some kind of, uh, and not in a victimy way, like we're victims to this entity, because I feel like people like us also have higher beings or whatever that are helping us that are giving us synchronicities that are causing all these things to happen in our life that are uh, beneficial. And so that's also, I think, another level of victimhood, because a lot of people that get into truth, all, all they always want to point the finger like, oh, look at what they did to us. Look at what they did. Well, if they didn't make it so hard we wouldn't be able to get so good. It's like they're putting more weight on our barbell at the gym is basically what they're doing. If you look at it in one sense, and I'm not saying that you're doing that or whatever, but it's just an idea I've had. I was talking with a friend, Joe about it. So uh, we were My saying, we don't think theories that nobody's in charge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. And that it's a, a mafia system yep. and competing mafias and families. And like, there's the power struggle. levels shift and there's struggle and, but it's all mafia. Yeah, we're definitely on <laughs> like the even think about the, Va- the Vatican, that. right? They're the the Vatican started the idea of Christians. The word Christian is a corruption from the Greek word Christus, which is like C R C H R E S rather than Chris with an I. And there's a misconception about that because Christos with the I is more like an idea of the MSH or the Mem Shen He in Hebrew, which is Moses or um, Messiah, a lot of words derived from that. And Crestus with the Ada sound, the Ada Greek letter, as opposed to the Iota, which was the I, gives you a word meaning good. <laughs> so, and it's like foundational in the early church writings and the, the works that Christianity derived from that they were actually calling that group the Crestians, which means good fellas. <laughs> good they're the good men Christianoi or Christiani and as opposed to Christ and that's hilarious to me because what do they call the Italian mob to this day good in the fellas. movies they're the good fellas <laughs> yeah it's right it's right in your uh, plain sight it's right in plain sight how they say whatever they say hidden in plain sight but it's not even hidden it's just you know it's just there it's yeah. just pranks dude yeah it's all pranks that's why I love it and I feel like it's just like Loki. It's the trickster and that exists within as well. We talk about all these divination tools and stuff in like the tarot, for example. And it's an and, extension of self-deception. Yeah. Like the fractal is built from the bottom up, not from the top down. Exactly. And it's there to play with your, I guess you could say ego, whatever it is, whenever you're not in touch, I guess, with your intuition, it kind of will knock you down a peg or smack you or whatever it is however words you want to use it, but it's, it's just a force of nature really at the end of the day too. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, man. <laughs> Where do you guys want to go from here? I, I love well, all I the things some, I've got to talk about so far. Love it. Um, if you have more, hold those thoughts. I just have a couple of questions for you. Um, how do you spell Lumashi or what you were saying was, well, it'd be a transliteration of a Sumerian word. Oh. And I don't think you're going to find. Okay. I don't think you're going to find it in a Google search. Okay. But I learned this term from a scholar named John McHugh. And okay. I'm trying to remember the name of his book. Uh, it's the Celestial Code of Scripture. The Astral Cipher 
underlying the miracle stories of the Bible and Quran. So the astral cipher he's talking about is Lumashi constellation writing. And Mm -hmm. it's, I'm not far in this book at all yet, but it's like awesome to have discovered because it really aligns with the work that Dylan does that I'm sort of collaborating with. I mean, in the sense of producing his audiobooks and uh, (laughs) sending him all the connections and ideas that I see all the time since I got the keys. So that would be the book, John McHugh, The Celestial Code of Scripture. M-C-H-U-G-H. M-C-H-U-G-H. G-H. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Have you heard of Stan Tennant in his work with uh, language and stuff like that? I recognize the name. Um, He was, uh, I think he was like an MIT professor or something back in the 90s. And he used to do a lot of lectures on where all the Hebrew alphabets came from, uh, the Hebrew alphabet came from. But it was basically uh they would take this crystal and shine into the sun and there'd be different shapes and then they would interpret the shapes based on these things and yeah it's basically the same thing they're getting it just from the realm from the consciousness as you were kind of saying it uh how you were saying it with language and where all this stuff comes from you know i don't actually believe that particular theory just because i don't see evidence for it but that's not to like, you know, poo poo the idea because <laughs> ultimately we don't know, but I'm really enjoying the work of Godfrey Higgins right now, who was a early 1800s researcher. I always like to point out like his <laughs> compare him, his work ethic level in researching this stuff to like what the average truth squirter would talk about or like their research level, <laughs> myself included, not calling myself a truth squirter, but. You know, the level of research is nothing compared to what the the giants whose shoulders that we should be standing on did. And his like entire goal was to get into the study of language and mythology and religion and spend six hours a day for 10 years. And he wound up spending 10 hours a day for 20 years <laughs> to come up with his his great work, Anacalypsis. And he has a really awesome uh, set of evidence and description about how the original language maybe came from trees and leaves. And he demonstrates really conclusively too how like the original Hebrew alphabet of 16 letters is an exact match for the 16 letters in order and in numerical value that Cadmus mythologically brought to Greece, to the ancient Greeks. And it's an exact match to the Celtic alphabet. I think there's another couple of alphabets in there too, where the same exact alphabet of the original 16 letters is a match and also a match for like what trees they represent each letter representing a tree. So he has this theory about that. Maybe the first system of letters uh, other than being numerical, which (laughs) that's a whole nother aspect too, to like get into and explain why language is numerical, why alphabets are alphanumeric how that came about and like, you know, the, the probability that the numbers came before the letters in terms of a system, but that he he's putting forward this idea back then that the different trees that were available in the environment already had names. You know, there's a spoken language before a written language, of course. And that as they came up with letters, they would take, they would do this. Their original writing would be like the actual leaves from the tree and each different tree has a different shape of leaf. Wow. And that leaf would be a letter. 
and the letter would be named after the tree that it came from. And they, you know, you would just lay those out and organize that. And you're reading green language, which it's still called today, whenever you can interpret the, uh, the hidden meaning and language in a right-brained way and not just a left-brained way. And there's a lot of interesting syncs to give you, um, you know, clues that maybe this is the case and maybe this is true. For example, that, oops, just raised my desk up. <laughs> For example, that uh, leaves in a book, right? They call the sheets of paper in a book leaves. And uh, the, <laughs> you know, there's like a lot of gods named after trees or that, Odin, for example, hung from the home oak to get the secret of the runes, which are letters. And uh, Bacchus was called Lieber. And that means both book and free. Um, right. So there's a, there's a lot to it. But that's, I personally think that that's a very plausible, incredible theory for the origin of alphabets that works more for me than shining uh light through a crystal <laughs> like because at the point where you're like working with it, crystals that are that advanced and you know i feel like you probably already had a language <laughs> you know you probably came up with something that was a lot more simple and readily available in the environment just on oh, a yeah. common sense logical flow not to poo poo that idea it's an interesting idea and maybe there's some truth to it but well, that's I, I like my origin of language or origin of alphabets idea I like we said about the trees because it's the same thing with the druids. They were strongly connected with trees. And I, from the way that I see, I love what you said because it kind of, it fits into my worldview and the fact that the language is just part of this realm. So maybe they could get a crystal to do the same thing. And it's just a pattern that we don't exactly see because we're part of it. Uh, something like that. But I love that. I think I've heard you talk about that before too with the leaf and the. Lieber and all that stuff. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And it's crazy because again, coming back to Tolkien, he was obsessed with trees. Ents. Yeah, ants too. And he, he wrote about, it. but even in his own life, he was like always writing about trees and talking about the trees outside and all that stuff. Yeah. So coming back. Yeah, even in uh I'm trying to remember where who said this. I can look it up, but I think it was like a a rabbi, ancient Chaldean rabbi. Can't remember the name, but said that the this is something I learned from Dylan's fourth book, A God's Acre for Winds of the Soul. But that the uh, tree in the Garden of Eden, the leaves were letters. So, like, why? <laughs> to me, also tree bark is called Liber in Latin, the bark, right? And you, so there's that too. Uh, there's a lot of possibilities there, but makes more sense to me than anything else the the tree leaves theory oh, you know and we you have the tree of life theory. of kabbalism and the world tree of norse mythology and again odin on the on the tree hanging on the tree yeah i know i love all that stuff and uh sharon and i have this interesting idea we could share with you really quick because it falls in line with this but we were talking about the tower of babel and we were uh, earlier but Sharon and I have this idea that maybe that's the birth of speech. Like before that, people spoke in a way that you could describe as telepathic, but it's not what we've been told on TV where I just like, give me a sandwich, you know, and you can hear it. it's more of you're in touch <laughs> with your own inner knowing and feeling. And if people are in touch with theirs, then you could share ideas or feelings with them in that way. And then maybe this split, whatever the Tower of Babel moment was, it was trying to represent when humans actually started to talk 
not that talking is a bad thing. We're not trying to slaughter that sacred cow, but uh, it could be possible that that's how humans, uh, maybe the consciousness is different or whatever, but that's how they communicated. So we always um, would talk about that. Sharon, did you have anything you wanted to say too? I mean, uh, no, yeah, we do. We do. We have just speculated on, you know, could it be that, you know, there was a point in time when we did um, speak to each other telepathically. And like you said, more, it, I see it more kind of like, and I know this is kind of a, I don't know, a stretch, but like when somebody does Reiki on someone else, they're sending energy, right? They're, they're, uh, they're moving energy, sending energy, whatever you want to call it. Um, we, we can, if that's that. okay with Martin from Rockfin. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we have those, we have those abilities clearly. So what if, what if what we did before, uh, was more along those lines where we could do that with each other and we had those abilities to know that that was what we were doing and we could communicate with each other in that way. So like today people are learning Reiki because maybe it's a lost art, you know, a a lost ability. Um, And so some people, some people know how to do that. Some people know how to work with that energy and, and the people who receive it, perhaps maybe they don't know, but all they, all they do is they feel the, the repercussions or the, the benefits of a Reiki session. Right. Um, But they don't, they're not aware of how it works or anything, but let's say that they did and the other person did too. I mean, could it be that that's telepathy? That is a form of telepathy. Well, yeah. I mean, I do tuning sessions for people remotely. Yeah. Like even the fact that that works can give a person the experiential knowledge that distance and separation are mental and conceptual, not actual. Yeah. Like in terms of Reiki, I learned what I do, like part of the path to becoming a biofield tuner was earlier in life, practicing Reiki, just as like an innate skill that unlocked in me as I played with crystals and worked on my personal energy field with Qigong. And I think it's kind of like, there's some things about Reiki that are, I don't know, quicksand in a way, or we're kind of retarded, like that some people that will, will sell you like, Oh, I'll attune you to Reiki for $500 or something. (laughs) You're already attuned. You are a vessel for life force energy, but also not to, not to like pick apart your words, but we also do better if we're not imagining that we're sending them our energy, but rather that we're a conduit for intention and for, you know, Right. And I'm to, not using the right terminology because I don't know much about Reiki myself. So I'm yeah, just, uh, but that's where it's often described right, that way as like, right. You know, you're magically sending them energy and like yeah. my powers are healing you <laughs> yeah. and uh, it can, you know, if you want to send somebody your energy, that's part of the messiah of we got to save your, each other. We need to save your ourself. Right. Everybody sacrifice yourself for everybody else. Yeah. And that's the only way we can have, uh, paradise which is communism (laughs) you know the best guy jc he's the best guy in our hero because he let everybody he let the crowd kill him (laughs) so you know we get this messiah of like savior programming and basically it's the exact same thing with the jabs too like you know yours doesn't mine doesn't work if you don't get yours and like 
don't worry. Even if there's risks, do it. You're doing it for everybody else. Yeah. Right. And it's so silly and obvious logically that if everybody sacrifices themselves for the crowd, everybody's everybody's (laughs) been sacrificed. (laughs) There is not even a crowd anymore. Everyone's dead metaphorically. And if we all save ourselves, if we find our internal savior, then everybody is saved. <laughs> Nobody needs saving. Everyone took care of themselves. And then, you know, I'm not saying that we can't help each other, but in the scenario where most people are putting their energy and intention towards working on themselves and being their own savior, master, what have you. Uh, and that really, and that's directed by an interconnection to the creative force, the, the, the higher force, the supreme being, you can, put it in any of those terms and that's good and fine Uh, because it's something that is bigger than, than the ego. You know, there's some good points of talking about the ego, the way that the, the Eastern traditions do that. It's not all, it's not all just that, but it's also not that we should kill that (laughs) and sacrifice it to the crowd or to the nothingness or whatever. So, you know, in the case where we're taking care of ourselves largely than those that need extra help, but we're all there ready to, do something that we can because we didn't sacrifice ourselves. And generally, like the dynamic I see in people's energy field is often even holes in the their boundaries of their aura. And we get trained like we got to feed each other our light, and then we got to feed off of each other's light. And we are perpetuating a parasitic system that the entire priestcraft sorcery has actually. Uh, is a reflection of, has cultivated whatever you want to call it, that it's a cult of middlemen and mediators. You know, first it's the, the robed guy between you and God. <laughs> then it's the white lab coat between you and knowledge or between you and health. And then it's the suit and tie between you and authority, you know, and self-determination. And it's across the board. It's the, the guy at the shop between you and the thing that you need. And, you know, he's charging you the, the premium. <laughs> I'm not saying to get rid of commerce or capitalism, but like, you know, when you look at the system as a whole that we're in, it's all predicated on there being somebody between us and the source of what it is that we're after or we need from food to knowledge to, you know, across the board. And what we need is to recognize where that is becoming vampiric or has been vampiric forever. And that to abrogate that system, first, we have to nullify the claims of those who set it up and put themselves at the top of the hierarchy. And those claims come all the way back from this Lumashi thing I'm talking about of kings and empires founding their authority on the historical, the belief of a historical character who was actually mythology, (laughs) like the Vatican's whole claim to all the souls on the realm is predicated on an allegory in the Bible. Peter, the rock upon which I will build my church. Peter means fucking rock. It's a, it's a metaphor. (laughs) Petra, you know, it's not anyway, (laughs) you have to have this historical Christ to be the office that the Pope fills. You know, he inherits it. He's the CEO of Christ Corp. And literally (laughs) the papacy is a CEO. Uh, The papacy is a corporation. And this is not an attack on Christians. But I hope to expand their mindset so that they don't need to argue, argue and squabble and grabble over like, well, it, the Bible is obviously history, but you're reading it wrong. And it actually means this. 
And why don't we let all that go and realize that in alchemy, the mercury, which is our Christ, our Mercury, our Hermes, our Odin, our Buddha, our Bacchus, all these characters are alchemical mercury. The mercury is a solvent, which is the same root as, a, as salve, which is a healer or a salvatore, salvation. Mm-hmm. And in alchemy, <laughs> this mercury is brought in to be the trinity or the child, you know, that takes the process from one octave to the next octave. and. In alchemy, the best example to give is doing metal, is metal extractions, because, you know, most people who do alchemical extractions of herbs and stuff, they're using alcohol as the solvent and they leave the alcohol in. (laughs) Ben Balderson taught me about this. They leave the alcohol in and that actually, that, that, that is a step that you're not completing the great work. So without alchemy of metals, you would actually, instead of alcohol, use like hydrochloric acid, <laughs> like really crazy shit to extract. And if you were to go and create some kind of tincture that you want to ingest out of an, a metal extraction and you left the mercury in, philosophical mercury being the hydrochloric acid, don't eat that, <laughs> you know? And in much the same way, the external savior the the story, the allegory of the Christ or the Buddha is meant to be brought into your process, teach you, help you do the internal marriage of the salt and the sulfur, metaphorically speaking, you know, your ancient ancestral memory with your current life spirit and awareness, do that alchemical marriage. But then you remove the mercury from the equ- equation for the philosopher's stone. And what I mean by that is, once you have, once the external savior story has led you to the truth as an allegory that it is, which is that it's actually within you, <laughs> the balancing these forces of create, creation and destruction within you is, uh, and, and, and marrying your opposites, balancing your yin and your yang forces is the great work that leads you to be able to do what creator does in the image, in the microcosm of what the creator does manifest, build, imagine, change things, <laughs> you know, uh, then you, you basically like, this is what's been lost is that the alchemy of it tells us the external savior carries you to a certain point and then you don't need it anymore. And if you keep it, you've actually poisoned your concoction. You've poisoned your tincture. The medicine is now toxic Ah, (laughs) it's got alcohol in it or it's got hydrochloric fucking acid in it so this means like i hope this makes sense to people out there that maybe even don't agree with what i'm saying right now but that you like why does it need to be a historical story with all these fanciful mythological aspects to it like you know going back to the old testament samson killing a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass please explain to me like why we need to believe that is historically true and how is that anything other than allegory and, and metaphor and mythology? <laughs> and it's actually right up in the stars tells you where that idea came from having to do with like words around the uh, Orion constellation and stars within it that have the components of like a bone and a jaw and an ass and the number <laughs> 1000 encoded in the names of the stars and of the constellation. So somebody a long time ago looked at that. It was like, 
okay, he killed a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass because that's what these stars are named. So we made a story out of it. Yeah. And then now in our dumb modern times, people are still like, yeah, that really happened. <laughs> and it's the exact same thing with all the other scriptures and mythologies. They are meant to be pointing you towards something in nature, but then like we've gone and distorted so far beyond. And this is actually where I come to this idea that I've been putting forward lately. It's not a claim. It's just a conjecture that the astral realm, people talk about the astral realm, right? What if that is actually the metaverse? <laughs> and what I mean by that is like the astral astral means stars. And so you brought up, and I'm circling us back around something I meant to get to, and I've just been on a longer ass rant, but <laughs> you brought up the idea of like the tower of Babel and that maybe there is an innate form of communication pre-language and that the Bab tower of Babel is language and that language, the Babel of language is a grabble <laughs> and we've been babbling and grabbling ever since, <laughs> which it seems like likely to me, but you know, when we look at how animals communicate, birds have a certain song that that bird sings and they're always singing that melody. Mm -hmm. Maybe humans have that too. We have a natural instinctive like memory for song and melody and stories have been passed forward that way for a long time. So to some, you know, it's not unreasonable to think that there could be uh, some kind of inherent or even if it was culturally derived set of sounds like ma means mom everywhere in all languages, basically. You know, there could be reason for that physiological, just like the birds of the same species sing the same song. And then we started, <laughs> then we started to like get more complex and advanced. And we're like trying to figure out the world around us. And we came up with numbers by looking at the moon and drawing circles in the dirt and using sticks to do that. And then turning leaves into letters and we keep going and going. And now all of a sudden, like we've got a lot of information here and we need to pass this information forward and retain it. So how do we do that? Well. We know that songs are a good way to pass information forward. And actually the ancient languages like, I would say ancient Hebrew is not really that ancient. Modern Hebrew it's kind of came about more in the middle ages. And that's another gravel all itself. And these, these priest classes really try to make themselves look older than they are. And that's always a thing as part of claiming their authority. But the case has been made that ancient languages were also musical and that like when you look at scriptures as sheet music, it is actually applicable knowing the gematria numerical value and how that corresponds to the Western musical theory of notes. And uh, I did an episode about this just last night. It was really good. And anyway, so we are encoding information in music, passing it forward. And then we need it to be more complex than that. We start like, okay, well, the information that we're getting about nature it's coming from looking up, you know, when the sun's doing this, we know that this type of season is going on and it, we know this because it's in context with the backdrop of the stars. And when it's in this part of the sky at this time of day, it means this, you know, and it's more complicated than that, but we need to retain this information and the complexity of it and these great cycles that we've probably spent thousands of years figuring out. And so we apply stories to the stars that way we'll never forget them. Because someday, even if we forgot a lot of it, somebody will still remember the story. We'll still remember that that's Orion up there and that's Perseus over there. And an intelligent person will be able to look at the, the constellations and their names and the relationship between them and maybe come up with 
the alchemy that we were trying to encode about natural cycles and how nature builds things and the order of operations that it does it at mathically or mathematically. <laughs> and that's great. We have a great system now, but continue fast forwarding. And what happens in my opinion is that people have gone further with this Lumashi concept than is reasonable <laughs> of, of constellation writing. You know, they have forgotten history, but they're trying to do exactly what the system was intended to do, which is pull information out of the mythology and out of the constellation system. to try to remember like, well, what were they trying to tell us when they named all these things? And it goes further and further into corruption as more and more ideas are constantly put forth and more and more rulers are like, no, 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 do it my way. Make it about me. Put me up there. I'm in the constellations now. And <laughs> so on a thought form level, this is where it gets a little further into the mystic and the woo and the conjectural, but thoughts are things. You know, thought forms have an existence to a degree. They have an energetic component. I know this from working in people's biofields that their thought forms actually create structures in their energy field. And if that's the case in the micro, makes sense that it could be the case in the macro. So if we lose the meaning of the Lumashi as allegory, take it literally, believe there's actually a Hercules, there's actually a Zeus, whatever the case may be. And on a certain level, innately, <laughs> we also know, or from the symbolic or archetypal level, that the Hercules is actually the sun, that the Buddha is actually the sun, that the Bacchus is actually the sun. Have we created through this idolatry a type of sun demon? Because mm -hmm. I think that's possible. I think even the idea of the Demiurge as like, the artificer that is controlling our realm and, and running the matrix and, and loosing us, there could be an element of that that could kind of be true in the sense of all the idolatry thrown at the sun and characters who actually represented the sun maybe is making an energetic structure or form. And I was going to say something like that earlier about like, could it be manifesting just because of people believing it to be true? Yeah. And in this way of looking at it, the matrix isn't the world we're in. Reality is reality, right? A tree is not called a tree. It is what it is. A deer is not called Jeff. You're not called Sharon by nature. It's just what we call it. And even in other languages, they don't even say my name is. They don't put the I am into the relationship of being this noun. Yeah. Nouns aren't real. Nouns are fiction. Instead, they say, I am called this, which makes mm -hmm. way more sense. Yes. Or like, instead of saying, I am sad, they say, I have sadness, yeah. right? They don't identify with it. And that's a way powerful, way more powerful use of language. So to like, maybe round out this huge rant that I've been on <laughs> but, and like put this possibility forward, this conjecture forward is that the astral realm, right? The astral logos, the writing in the stars, the mythology, and all the collective human energy, and in many cases, idolatry directed at these mythologies could potentially create a metaverse of sorts where through language and through our belief and our idolatry, humanity has created actual thought forms in the psychic realm. They actually influence the way that we perceive reality. And like Baudrillard talks about hyper-reality being that it makes the real world feel less real in the ways in which it doesn't conform 
to the hyper reality that we've overlaid on top of it. Just like people who believe the news is reality, when they see the real world, they feel like <laughs> when they see truth, they feel like it's fake. They feel like it's a lie because it doesn't conform to the overlaid reality they've put on it through their belief in the news. You can tell so, it's real because it looks so fake. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the astral realm could very well be like an actual layer of psychic space that overlays that overlays our perception and is similar to the metaverse in a way because people even go to the astral realm in meditation and they even meet beings like Buddha or, you know, whoever. Right. Yeah. So it makes you wonder, like, have we created a metaverse? Are these avatars of thought forms? You know, because I don't want to rule out all the experiential reports of people having mystical contact with beings who I, I know for sure are allegories for the sun. I know for sure, but like, well, why are they having that? And I think yeah. the mind, a- the mind pre- precedes all. And so the mind can create that experience exactly. in the collective mind of the, the whole world, being that it's for thousands of generations potentially been influenced by this set of particular archetypes and relationships that we call astrology very well may have built the original metaverse, the original construct, the original sort of false reality overlaying our, the real world. And it's like, uh, there's, I don't know. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> That's where I'm at though. With it all. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally follow. I, I think it's very, very interesting and highly likely it's something like that. It's just a mystery. Like Michael Tessarion says, sometimes you have to just accept a mystery at some point and that it helps you to stay non dogmatic, you know, and something I want to throw in really quickly. It's, uh, because we premiere these shows on Thursdays. So, when you're seeing this, just know we're recording this on 1010 and it's also Columbia Day or Columbus Day. So it's funny that we're talking about all these ideas of history that might not actually be, but it's like, yeah, we're just surrounded by them. It's hilarious. Yeah. And Columbus is another one of entrance. those characters that might not even been real, in my opinion. Columb means dove <laughs> and dove encodes black. And his name is Christ, Christopher Christ and Christ <laughs> Krishna means black <laughs> and all the solar deities are depicted as black, black Madonna's black Osiris, yada, yada. Cause the sun starts its journey in darkness in the underworld black and then rises. So like even Columbus, uh, <laughs> the word dove, basically why I say it means black or can in twilight speak refer to black is because in Gaelic, the word dub like D U B H, I think, means black. And again, Greek and Gaelic have a literal connection in their alphabet. And between languages, the letter V and the letter B switch all the time in terms of a sound. It just depends on the region and the dialect. And the Greek letter eta can be an E or an H. So D-O-V-E very, very plausibly could change to be spelled D-U-B-H. Dove, dub. And there's more reasons than that, that the dove is associated with black. It's like, you know, it's very sneaky symbolism because doves are white, but it's a thing. It's an inversion. Yeah. Yeah. I have a couple of questions for you. Um, I, I want you to define, if possible, like uh, astrotheology, syncretism. And you mentioned this word that Dylan Sokosho wrote it as his title, God Psyker. 
or however you pronounce that. I kind of want to know what, you know, I want definitions for all those three things from your perspective and point of view. A God's acre, God's acre. It's just a word that means graveyard or cemetery. They called it that because it was like a field where the souls have been returned to God. So way more beautiful word than cemetery and graveyard, which conjure up the idea of like uh, <laughs> ghosts and goblins and ghouls and rituals and all that. So yeah, God's acre and the book is a God's acre for winds of the soul and winds of the soul is uh, an English translation of a Greek word, psyche aminoi, I think, or aminoi, which is uh, basically like the idea of the, the Holy Ghost or the, the animating spirit, even Holy Ghost uh, log- is part of the Logos, right? Well, Holy and Heli are pretty much the same word. Vowels can be interchanged uh, it, when you're looking at language from a philological, yeah. etymological perspective. Don't be afraid to swap out vowels because just imagine like right now, if I said the word Omega and then we had a New Zealander here who speaks English and they said Omega, they would say, Omega. Yes. Right. So, duh, like we can change vowels out. <laughs> Spelling isn't so concrete. So, anyway, heli, holy. Heli is helios. Ghost, gust. The heli gust. The winds off of the sun. Winds of the soul. Soul is sun, S O L. So, that's cool. a, it's a multi layered title. Yes. <laughs> He's got away with words. I really like Dylan's work. Been awesome. super life changing for me to integrate and uh, start seeing my own connections and expand on them. And yeah, I owe a great debt of gratitude to Dylan and Michael. Michael and Dylan, probably the two biggest influences on all of my Is work of anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's the oversharing show. You could add that in. <laughs> What'd you say, Brandon? I said, and now one of them is the oversharing show. I said, he can add that into his list. Of, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, oh, Jesus. Yeah. So, um, okay. So you'd mentioned astrotheology, but I also wanted to know like uh, syncretism. Like, how do you define those, those two words? How would you define them? Kind of the same thing because syncretism for me is about finding the astro theology in something. Okay. I figured it was very similar. Syncretism is literally like how it sounds. You're syncretizing things so that you're finding the connection between things that isn't obvious on the surface. Like, you know, between all of the, <laughs> here's a syncretism example, really easy, obvious one. What's Jesus's mother named? Mary. Okay. What's Buddha's mother named? I don't know. Maya. Okay. Okay. What's Mercury? Who is Hermes? What's his mother named? Maya. <laughs> and then it's not the same culture, right? Buddhism is all the way over there in the East and, and Mercury is a Greek God. In Arabic, Maya is water. There you go. And, and Maya. Mer, Mar in Spanish is water. I mean, the, the ocean or the sea. So you just syncretize because yeah, Mar, even in Japan, they call a boat the like we put SS in front of a boat. They put Maru, whatever Maru, Mar, Mare, Mars. <laughs> it's the ocean. Exactly. And even Mer of Mercury and Mar. Same concept, actually. And uh, another one, Adonis, who is a sun god. His mother's name is Mira. It sounds like Mir, 
well, what does water, isn't water the first mirror that humans would ever encounter? Yeah. So right there, you just syncretized. We're bringing up the Arabic word for water is Maya. And in Hinduism, Maya or Maya, M-A-Y-A, is the illusion, the simulation. Mm. The matrix. It's the matrix. But what does matrix mean in Latin? Do we know? It's like the womb. It means womb. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The ocean, the birthing from the ocean, the waters. I think it's reasonable to assume on a fractal level <laughs> that possibly life is actually a dream that we're having inside of the womb waiting to be born into another life. And in that life, we're actually dreaming inside of a womb waiting to be born into another life. I wouldn't, (laughs) I wouldn't doubt it. I'm cool with that interpretation. I'm cool with it too. Yeah. I love it. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, is there anything else you wanted to talk about Sharon? Um, I think that was, I think that was probably it. I want to show you guys my road. No, the womb hopping thing. That's a mic drop. Let's do it. (laughs) The the what? The womb, like hopping from womb to womb. I think that's a mic dropper. Yeah, we can finish up with that. What do do you have? You got a cool crystal there to show me? Yeah, it's a rhodonite. Cody gave this to me. Road is another word meaning C, R-H-O-D-E. Wow. Yep. There's a sync. Syncretism. That's a total sync. He gave it to me um, because he was looking for a stone that represented like healing from trauma, from past traumas and stuff like that. And, you know, like self-healing and stuff like that. So. Yeah, it's a good one for that. And And you can know by the colors what it's good for. Okay. So it's like a reddish color to it and black. It's yeah, pinkish, pink and black. So it's going to help you draw in to your awareness and thus your healing capacity things that are on the darker spectrum the heavier spectrum in the red range which is your root and root is where trauma and fear come from but it's also your energy source in a big way so yeah you you can if people are curious about crystals and like what they mean you can get a a good guess on it if you have a conception of what the chakra colors represent and then you know, and that's amazing because <laughs> that there seems to be something to that, but it makes you wonder, like back to the whole astral logos, astral realm, Tower of Babel being a simulation or a metaverse, putting that idea forward. It's not necessarily that it's bad that it's like that, but maybe it would be way more helpful to us if we knew that that's what it was like, because in the same way, a language in a structure, however limiting it might be, whatever problems and confusion it might cause, it's also a system you can work within where we can understand each other and like Western music theory, which I covered last night, we had a lot of criticism about it as a system. But on the other hand, people can read music who can read music in one country and in another country and from history to now. And like, you know, within that system, there's a lot of freedom to express and it can be understood and consistent within itself. So and useful. Yeah. So I I see like, even with the biofield tuning stuff I do, I see it as a language and that language is imaginary. So, you know, the seven chakras that this type of energy or emotion lives in this area of the field around your body, that could all just be a language and not literal. It could all be imaginary. 
but through using it with the intention of as a language, you can get in and talk to your body. Your body's like, okay, this is the language. Okay. So I'm going to put this feeling over here. So when you run into it, you know that this is what I'm trying to tell you. Right. So we don't have to even accept it as like dogmatically true, even stuff like the chakras or biofield tuning to use it effectively as a language. And I think probably better to do it that way rather than be stuck on like, this is the way, this is the system. Yeah. Many paths up to the same mountaintop, basically. Yes. Many ways to communicate yourself. Well, Chance, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a really, really fun time. I had a blast and I know Sharon's over the moon right now. Yes. She went to the moon. Yeah, we were very excited about this interview. And why don't you tell everybody once again where they can find you? Yeah, interversepodcast.com or Interverse Podcast on YouTube or Rockfin. I'm on Patreon. I'm on BitChute. I'm on Odyssey. You know, just look up Interverse. You should find it. And there's a lot, a lot more gravy there (laughs) than even in this talk because, you know, we go deep. We go really deep. Yeah, that's what I definitely admire about you. Um, and everybody, if you want to find us, you can go to morelawsmoreproblems.com. It's my website. Click on the Oversharing tab. We have all the ways you can watch us on YouTube. Uh, you can watch us on Telegram. You can listen on Telegram. And we also, exactly gravy. And we're also on Podbean, which means we're on Apple Music and Spotify and all the fun places. You can find uh, the RSS feed Podcast. and everything right there in the podcast and we're we're re-releasing our old episodes because even though we have this weird numbering system which i don't know who's responsible for probably me uh we are only like in the 30s but we've done this for a year because we used to do one 1.1 whatever we even did episode zero so if you want to go back and listen to those they're backdated you could just scroll back in time and listen to us talk uh, just as if it was today. So check out all those episodes too. Yeah. We'll and be posting more as they, as we uh, get more on there. Yeah. The older exactly. episodes. Yeah. So awesome. Great conversation guys. You're a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on and letting me rant, you know, I like yeah. the best well, way to figure sure. out what I think about stuff is to just go off like that. <laughs> it always, I always get a new levels and like, Oh, Yeah. And it's like this. And so this is one of those conversations where I feel like I was able to stretch my perspective further and farther than ever before. And those are what I'm here for. Appreciate you a lot. So glad. Yeah. That's why we call it oversharing. We just say, just go, you're oversharing. It's fine. That's what we're supposed to do. And in normal day life, people get mad, but on the oversharing show, that's what we uh, expect. So we're glad that you did that. And uh, also shout out to the chat. You can watch us every night, uh, every Thursday night live at around 8.33 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and hang out in the chat with us. We have a great group of people in there. It's a lot of fun. So come on in and Sharon doesn't tolerate any funny business. She will ban you very quickly, which I love. So um, I'm like first chance. ask questions never. Yeah. I'm like chance. I just ban. Exactly. <laughs> No division in here. Uh, I mean, you know, if you disagree, it's one thing, but we don't need to hear dogmatic. This is my house. Exactly. It's a good policy. My community around my show is incredible. And I look at it like totally, you know, what's the value in trying to fix things up with one person who was choosing to be a problem on purpose when it, you know, is distracting all our attention to their retardedness when I could just like kick them out. And go on about my life and never think about it again. <laughs> I love There's it. always more fish in the sea content creators I, out there. You don't got to cater to every little whiny little 
loser that comes into your chat, you know, let them get the message by not being allowed to chat anymore. And then maybe they'll, that's probably more helpful to them <laughs> in yeah. terms of them understanding like, well, why was this boundary set? And if they wanted you to feel victimized, that's their problem, but you never have to think about it again. Yeah. And uh, I feel like that's a good way to curate a good community is to not worry about the number of people, but the quality of people and let that attract the tribe. I concur. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, there's a band hammer for a reason. So uh, that's what I say. Some people just can't handle the gravy. They drowned. It's just too much. I get it. You know, I'm just I'm six five. So I could just let the gravy, you know, come all the way up. But uh, (laughs) some people can't. Yeah. (laughs) All right. What do we say to the good people, Sharon? That if you're not over Sharon. Then you're totally not Karen. That's right. All right. So keep over Sharon, everybody. We'll see you next time. 